Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Clifford Brooks, and I am the host of Dante's Old South. In this August of 2022, we've got a fantastic show for y'all. Up first, we have poet and, dare I say, living legend, Ellen Bass. She's here to talk about her new courses in creative writing that are dropping this October that uh, I can promise you are worth their weight in publishing gold. In the middle, we have the incomparable genius of Atlanta haberdasher J.D. Mr. Classic Robinson with the hour rounded out by the director of Mercer University's Press, Mr. Mark Jolly. To add to this party, y'all are hearing nothing but music from Rising Appalachia. And if you tune in next month, you'll hear our feature interview with them. Before we get into it, let me thank NPR, WTC, especially Richard Winham, who gave me this opportunity to get on the air and spend this time with you, as well as Mr. Michael Amade, who polishes all of this to a shine. Now, let's sit back and relax and make good on that first promise about Rising Appalachia with the song Resilience. Show up at the table again and again and again. I'll close my mouth and learn to listen. These times are poignant. The winds have shifted It's all we can do To stay uplifted Pipelines through backyards Wolves howling out front Yeah, I got my crew But truth is what I want Realigned and on point Power to the peaceful Prayers to the waters Women at the center All vessels open To give and receive Let's see the system brought down to its knees. Down, down 
done What are you gonna do about it When the world comes undone My voice feels tiny And I'm sure so does yours Put us all together Make a mighty And up first on Dante's Old South, we have poet, educator, and living legend, Ellen Bass. Ellen, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Delighted to be here with you. It is an honor to have this time with you um, and to not waste a second and to talk about what I'm very excited about are your creative writing courses. Uh, You've got poetry and you teach and you have been for years in both areas. But tell us about these new classes you have coming up. Oh, thanks. I'd love to talk about them. I'm very excited about them. I never taught a lot online. And like many people uh, in 2020, when the pandemic hit, that was a necessity. And I had been reluctant. And I was amazed and surprised at what was possible and thrilled that people could come from anywhere uh, in the world. People who didn't have money to travel could come and uh, people who had disabilities and couldn't travel could come. And also because it's online and it was a webinar, I could offer scholarships to anybody who needed them. So the kind of um, openness of allowing so many more people to join was really exciting. And I found that it was a very exciting challenge for me as a teacher. I'd been teaching for over half a century, but usually teaching with people right in front of me. Usually I was looking at their poems as I tried to describe things. And here I knew I wanted to do something really different because I teach. I had taught in the past a lot of workshops where we uh, generated a lot of writing, but it's difficult outside of MFA programs for people to really find nuts and bolts about the craft, useful, practical, down-to-earth teaching that they can put to use right away. Mm-hmm. And I, I found that developing that was so interesting to me, and I wanted to make it so that I could speak to beginning writers and get them up to speed and also not bore very experienced published writers who were more successful than I am. And um, that was really, really fun too, to be able to make the teachings that nuanced. So they're very accessible, but they're also intensive and people can learn about all the aspects of the craft, about uh, metaphor and syntax and the turn and the leap and uh, different kinds of poems, the music in poems, imagery, um, structure, how you come to a place where you discover something that you didn't know before. And that's the real 
part of poetry. Uh, if we only write what we already knew, we're still in the diving board. We haven't jumped off. So how do you write your way from what you know into something new, which will actually change you? And I can't you know, claim that every single poem I've ever written changed me, but the significant ones have. In some small way, you're not the same person after you write it that you were before. And that is the kind of gold standard that we're working for is to change something within ourselves, something in the way we see, something in the way we move through the world. So it's been really great. We we read exemplary poems from a huge swath of mostly contemporary poets. And that's been another fascinating thing for me is reading poets that I hadn't yet been introduced to because there's so many great poets writing today and also going deeper into the poets whose work I already know. In this new series that's going to start in October, we also have guest, guest visits from um, poets who are going to come in for 20 minutes and talk about their work. We have Ada Lamont, the current U.S. Poet Laureate. We have Jane Hirschfield, who needs no introduction. We have uh, Diane Seuss, who just won the Pulitzer. <laughs> we have Naomi Shihab Nye, beloved. We have uh, Chris Abani, who I um, hang on every word of his. And we have uh, Donica Kelly, who is a powerhouse of an of a, uh, emerging poet with two books out now. And um, I just can't wait to hear what they have to say, as well as to share all that I've been putting together for the past year. I've been working on this series for a year and just reading and studying. And I think what, what I do is something that somebody could do if they wanted to spend the amount of time I spend. But most people don't have a year to just devote to developing this for themselves, even though there's a lot of research anyone could do. But what I do is I try and read through many, 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 many books, what many people have said about these subjects, and synthesize it so that I'm able to, in two or two and a quarter hours, really uh, convey what I think is the most interesting, the most accessible, and the most usable. It's not theoretical. I call them living room craft talks because it's practical. And, and we get to read these great poems and take them apart like a clock and see how they tick. Well, you sold me, and uh, <laughs> the, the the way that I that I came that I that I really that I found you, uh, and, and I've known of your work, but to, to have the pleasure of your company is uh, is is in the hands of our essay editor for the Blue Mountain Review, a member of the Southern Collective Experience, and a phenomenal poet in her own right, Lynn Kimmon. Lynn Kimmon is here with us as well as my co-host for this segment. Uh, Lynn, it is wonderful to have you here, and why don't you throw Miss Bass a question? Okay, um, it's wonderful to be here. I have um, done three of the four workshops that have already happened. I think I was probably the first person who signed up for the fifth one. <laughs> <laughs> that is my Thank way, you. out of my way. Um, Ellen, I'd like to know what the best thing that has happened in in one of those workshops. I have to say that living room is the perfect name for it. There's an intimacy 
Um, you don't get a sense that there there's anybody else except you, your guest, and the lucky person who's the viewer. So that's that's a wonderful thing. But what's what's the best thing that's ever happened? Wow, that's that's a hard question because there are so many bests. But I think what there's two things that touch me very deeply. Um, one is how many teachers come to the workshops and then take yeah. that, that um, I give these, as you know, Lynn, these extensive, you know, 50, 60 page handouts um, and, and quotes and sources and essays. So that, it's a, just a kind of treasure trove for teachers. And that's really exciting to me. And I just got an email today from a teacher in another country who is um, teaching not poetry, but neo-expressionist composition and wants to come from a really creative place and was asking me about one of the essays that I mentioned, and I was able to just send her the essay. And you know, so this feeling that it just disseminates is wonderful. And I think emotionally, what is really, really maybe at the top is when some people are going through very, very hard times and the poems sustain them. And there've been a number, a number of times where I think of one father who was sitting by the bedside of his daughter in the hospital and she was dying. She got in a car accident on her honeymoon mm-hmm. and he was holding on to these poems and being able to, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes art and beauty is, and, and somebody who is trying to say something in a way that is big enough to hold the uh, tragedy and the joy of our lives um, is the most powerful thing and that poetry can do that sometimes. And, and this, this particular person then had these poems that I I think, I, I know this has been true for me. There are several poems that have done this for me where when I was in a, a place of great despair, a poem that came from somebody who was also in despair, what it says to you is that this person lived through that. They couldn't have written the poem if they hadn't. And there are a couple of poems, maybe three that I've hung on to the most. And one is um, Lucille Clifton's poem, Sorrows, that some of you may know. And one is a teeny tiny poem by Langston Hughes that I can just recite to you. Um, It's called Island, Wave of Sorrow, Do Not Drown Me Now. Mm. I see the island still ahead somehow. I see the island and its sands are fair. Wave of Sorrow, take me there. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we we can carry, you know, part of it is a big part of everyone who comes to these talks wants to develop their skills as a writer. But also, and equally important, are our skills 
as a reader and what reading poems nourishes in us, what it enriches and enlarges and makes, sometimes just plain makes life bearable. I think one of the other things that I have gotten, and I know a lot of my friends have gotten, is the oral tradition and the listening that you don't get when you when you just read it, but when you read it aloud, it's a whole nother experience. And I think that's something that you've given us that's wonderful. Thank you. It's one of the things I really love about this. Uh, and of course, there are many books of poetry and books about poetry that are extremely important to me. But the oral part, I mean, a poem is in the air. And I, I love, I love um, teaching these uh, craft talks because I get to read these poems to people and I get to say them out loud. And recently I've been learning more and more poems by heart. And um, it, it, it sounds daunting. It might sound daunting to you if you haven't done that, you know, since eighth grade, but um I have a terrible memory in everyday life, uh, really bad. And I mean, yesterday I was trying to ask my wife to put the umbrella up over the patio chair because it was hot. And I couldn't think of the word umbrella. And I had to like make a, a sort of tent thing with my hands. And all I could come up with was awning. So, I mean, that's how bad it gets sometimes, you know, just, but learning a poem by heart is different. And there's a wonderful book called Saved by a Poem by Kim Rosen that led me through it. And if you're interested in this at all, I highly recommend it. Um, she teaches a method which is a little bit more involved in this, but the basic idea is that you just learn the first line. Just learn the first line. And if you can't learn the first line, learn the first half of the first line. And don't go on until you're comfortable. So it takes all the stress out of it. And my wife and I were learning our first poem together some time back. And it was a, a very long poem that she chose. And she said, you know, I don't think we can do this. I don't think I can do this. And I said, well, it doesn't matter if we get all the way to the end. What if we only learn three lines? We'll have three lines more than we had before. And we'll love those three lines. And let's just start with the first line. And if it takes us two weeks, who cares? And so giving that kind of freedom allows you to have it. And she and I have both found that having a few poems in our hearts is an amazing anxiety reducer. When, when you feel, I don't know how many of you listening deal with anxiety, but I do. Um, and my wife does. And when we're anxious, we just like, not necessarily together, just say the poem to ourselves. And it's, it's, um, I know people meditate, but I've never succeeded in getting myself to really follow uh, a sitting in the chair tradition. And so having the poem to say, I say it on walks, and the best place to do it is when I'm in line somewhere, impatient. And I'm there and I'm impatient and I'm impatient. And then all of a sudden I think to myself, I could say the poem to myself. And all of a sudden my impatience goes away 
because I'm there with beauty. Gorgeous. It is. It is. And uh, as we wrap up this segment, tell us how we can find these classes and apply for one of those scholarships if necessary. Oh, thank you. You can find them on my website, which is easy. It's ellenbass.com. My last name is Bass, like the fish, B-A-S-S, ellenbass.com. And you can sign up there and you can, if you need a scholarship, write to me at ellen at ellenbass.com. And uh, you can have one. Before we bring on J.D., Mr. Classic Robinson, let's hear Harmonize from Rising Appalachia.
Hey, y'all. Now, sliding in the middle of this show, we have legendary haberdasher and consummate professional, J.D., <laughs> Mr. Classic Robinson. J.D., how are you doing, boss? Squisher, I'm doing well. How are you doing, sir? I cannot complain. And now I will I will make this a short version of how we met, but I, I got to set this scene because I've never had this Absolutely. kind of guest on the, uh, I was at the red phone booth and I'll be it said, uh, I'm not getting paid anything to say this at the red phone booth. I heard behind me while I was sitting there with my company, this tap that I knew as it came closer, I'm like, that has to be a cane. And I remember thinking in my head, please, Jesus. I don't know why it was so important to me that this man, whomever it was, pulled off this cane with flair. And you did. And <laughs> you did. And it was like this. I was like, Lord, if he comes back again, I'm going to tell him. Uh, it, it is the, the swagger and the honesty and the humility in your genius. Uh, it's not just the cane. It's everything about you um, that's fine cut. And then coming to your store. Um, <clears throat> one, I've used the word haberdasher more than I ever have in my life, and it never gets old. Two, coming to your shop, uh, yeah. it was like stepping back in time. It was like stepping back in time. Um, before I get too deep into the melodrama and poetry of it, um, tell us uh, how you got the nickname Mr. Classic. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Classic. I guess it came about really and truthfully from my style being so old school, if you will. Oh yeah. So my, my father is a pastor and a police officer, a New York city police officer. All right. And yeah, since I was four, I had to learn how to iron his, his clothes, his uniform and police officers are very particular about the seam going down their pants being so precise. Mm -hmm. So I was always attracted to that style of, um, professionalism that style of uh, class and elegance and everything so i didn't really see it in my age group so i always had to go back yeah and everyone back then were wearing their suits very pristine had a very distinct look to them so uh, with that being said everyone always said every time they saw me dressing up and you're so classic with it you're so classic with it uh -huh. and you're like you're always real classy with it yeah. So then it kind of just kept caught on. Yeah, Mr. Classic. Yeah. You're always classic. So it yeah. kinda, I just kind of coined it and kept it going. <laughs> and it, it is, it's, it's, it's effortless. Uh, it's effortless. Now, it's, I'm sure it's, it's deceptively easy, you know, in, in, in the fact that it, uh, it, it, someone once told me, don't, don't let the clothes wear you. You wear the clothes. And uh, when I, when I, when I started to, to, to look at fashion, fashion always being something that I've been fascinated with being able to see somebody so in tune like that, man. Um, when you said Mr. Classic, I remember thinking, of course, of course, that's your nickname. Of course, that has to be your nickname. <laughs> now you mentioned your dad being a, a policeman and then, you know, helping him stay sharp. What got, what propelled you from that moment into this industry? So funny enough, I got in the industry through through music. So I was a professional musician for many years. Uh, right. I was a sideman. I went to Berkeley College of Music, studied jazz professionally. Yeah. And every time I went on a show or a gig, what have you, the main act being the sideman, the main act would always come to me like, hey man, listen, you can't look better than us. Bro. Like, <laughs> you can't look better than the main guy. Like, I, can't, I can't have this happen. So either you're going to help us dress better or you're going to have to, you're going to have to dumb it down a bit. And of course me being me, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, man, I'm not dumbing anything down. So 
we'll we'll start helping you. <laughs> so, so I would start styling um, the, the the artists that I would be playing with. Right. And it started to merge from that into some of the clients that I had were like politicians and uh, what have you. They would always ask me, "Hey, man, can you help me with my with my attire?" Yes. And I just kind of formulated a business out of it. Like, hey, you know what? I, I'm all for people dressing better, people representing themselves in the way that they would like to. So let me let me be that beacon, <laughs> if you will, yeah, I will, to those people that need the help. <laughs> and a lot of them do. A lot of, and I don't mean that as a joke. It, it's a uh, it, it, and and being able to talk about it is is rare. But everything elegant and refined about masculinity is kind. Of, it has been dumbed down. That's the perfect phrase for it over the last thirty years. And yeah. you know, again, to see a resurgence, and I think that I mean, this is just me personally that you know, coming out of COVID and people getting back out into the world, that the arts in general are exploding. But I see people dressing better. You know, now that we absolutely. remember what it's like to get outside, do you see that same same kind of preparation and fashion? Oh yeah, absolutely. I just had a a conversation with a couple of my guys, and we were we're actually discussing bringing. Uh, there's a huge fashion wave in Italy uh, called Piti Umo. Mm-hmm. So it's a bunch of fashion designers getting together, and a bunch of just fashion influencers getting together, and just kind of peacocking when it comes to their their wardrobe. So, right. <laughs> for lack of better terms, <laughs> no man, um, <laughs> you're schooling me today, bro. <laughs> so, uh, we're discussing bringing that to Atlanta, right? Because we're noticing a lot more, a lot more stylish uh, gentlemen as well as ladies coming out and really trying to put their put their stamp back in the ground. If, yeah, I, I know we're we're emerging from COVID, and mm-hmm. We need to get out of the whole sweatpants and baggy t-shirt thing. So <laughs> let's actually step out there. So we wanted to kind of put on an event where people have that opportunity to really, you know, go above and beyond and kind of show their class and their elegance and what have you. Now, as you attract new clients, uh, I think it's important to broadcast what you see as the ideal client. Give us some uh, perspective on mm. that. So for me. The ideal type of client, uh, the best way to describe it would be to describe what I would not want as a client, or rather, whom I would not want as a client. There you go. (laughs) I'm not really the designer that would attract the loud, the ostentatious type of client who who are just like, I want everyone to see me, the flash. Yes, I can design for that as far as the fabric goes, but... For me, it's more of the class, the elegance, the subtleties. And that's the type of client that I really want to attract. The individual who would rather say, I want you to notice the fabric quality more so than how loud the pattern is. Right. So anyone that really embodies that kind of mentality when it comes to their wardrobe, that's the type of individual I would rather work with. Right. And also, it helps in their business as well. So yeah. when you see a when you see a uh, a gentleman, let's let's use for an example, and they're very subtle in their in their wardrobe, but the the fabric quality, the cut of the suit, is done in in such a way that they're paying attention to those, to those little details. That's an individual that you would want to do business with because you know, as a man does one thing, he does everything. Yes. So if you're paying that much attention to your details of 
how the how the garment is draping on you, how it's just tailored perfectly to your body yeah. and the subtleties in your accents of your pocket square or your your cufflinks to make it just so beautifully, just a nice touch. Right. That's a person that you're gonna say, yeah, they know what they're doing and they they focus more on the class rather than um shining this big glare of patterns and colors yeah. and to that type of individual, you're looking at more so to say, what are you hiding? <laughs> what are you trying to what are you trying to cover up with all this glitz and glitz? <laughs> like, Never thought about that. You're covering up something because yeah. <laughs> what you lying yeah, about? You're showing a little bit too much. Yeah, you're, what you what are you lying about already? <laughs> like, <laughs> you, have, you haven't even said anything, and I can already tell you're lying. What is <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's what it looks like. Right. <laughs> it, I mean, it's it's it, it, this uh, this really lands us with a with a question that I have to ask at this point. And what what is your philosophy behind the importance of a well dressed man? So I have a a quote that I live by. Uh, it says, "Before they hear you, they must first see you." So make sure what they're looking at is going to be worth listening to. Damn. Yeah. So. With that quote, it just embodies everything that I try to portray. So when you're going into a job interview, when you're meeting a, a girl or a guy for the first time, it doesn't matter what you say. Unless the person's blind, they have right. to see you. Mm-hmm. That attraction is going to happen through the visual senses first. Right. So before they hear you, before you have the opportunity to, to give your pitch or to tell them how amazing you are, they have to be phys- like visually attracted to you. Right. So let's take care of that and make sure that you actually get the opportunity to sit at the table and then give your amazing award-winning speech. So I know, I know uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of people who have lost out on opportunities because their, their wardrobe wasn't up to par. Like they didn't look Agreed. the part. They didn't look like they wanted the job or that they were already working in that position. Yeah, because if someone can't see you working in that position already, they're not real likely to to give you the position. No, at so all. yeah, so that's why I focus on wardrobe and focus on image is to make sure people have a fighting chance to get to that seat. JD, Mister Classic Robbins, man, it has been a <laughs> it has been a gift to have you on this show, and um, you know, we've been talking about uh, off camera, as it were, um, more work with us, the magazine, the company, radio show, and your fashion sense. Uh, and I'm extremely excited about that. And uh, let me say again. Likewise, likewise. Uh, it is an honor to have sat here with you, man. And to round out this hour of Dante's, we have Mark Jolly, director of Mercer University Press. Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, Cliff. Well, it is an honor to have you on. As I was jabbering to you before I hit the record button, um, you came across my radar uh, uh, by way of novelist Jackie Cooper um, and several other in the publishing business that uh, as I was trying to fumble my way through developing my own, they pointed you out immediately to go for advice and uh, a humble opinion. And you're in this uh, season's issue of the Blue Mountain Review, you know, really talking about the nuts and bolts of this business. And uh while still keeping the romance there. So um, we'll dig into that in a second. But before I do, let me ask you a question. Mark Jolly, how did you come to the helm of Mercer University Press? Well, I was back in um, graduate school 
and I start looking for a job. And I, after applying for 90 teaching positions and having only one interview and not getting that job, I went to the bookstore and looked up what color is your parachute. And right there, it said editor. Mm-hmm. And I swear to you, the next day I got a phone call from a publisher in Nashville wanting me to consider applying for a job there. So I worked three years in academic publishing at a place in Nashville. And um, in back in 1995, the job opened up at Mercer. I applied for it as assistant publisher at the time. That was kind of like the COO, you might say, of a company of a, right. a company of 10. Yeah. <laughs> and so I came to Mercer in 95 and I became the director in 2003. All right. Um, what were some of the what are some of the differences? This may be one that you've answered too many times, but when you first started publishing, from you, from when you first started publishing to today, what are some of the biggest changes? Um, there, there are there are two things that I'll, I'll point out. One is printing has changed dramatically. Um, we have gone from sending um, a full collection of perfect pages, and the printer would photograph those pages and make a big giant giant pieces of film mm-hmm. and print from the book. And now we send a PDF file by the computer. And um, so the, the printing process has, has changed tremendously. Um, along with that, tied with that, is that nowadays you have the explosion of self-publishing mm-hmm. and even print on demand. And right. so you have offset printing, which is traditional. You have digital printing, which means we can print as few as five or 10 copies if we want to at a time. Or you have people who, who are publishing their own stuff. Right. Um, of, course, of course, you have ebooks. So the idea of printing in the book form itself has changed quite a bit, um, except for the fact that printed books are still on paper in between two covers, which is great. Um, the other thing that has changed um, is is basically the communication of an editor with writers. It used to be that I could go to the office and I could work till about five in the afternoon and go home and not hear anything. Nowadays, with phones and computers and everywhere, um, I get emails day and night. Yeah. Sometimes I get texts. Right. Uh, Sometimes I get phone calls on people who have grabbed my, my private number. So the communication has increased in a sense, because it's, we're all more um, available. Right. Um, But it's also good communication in a lot of ways. It really is. It's been very helpful. I I have found because when you had to wait four days for a letter. Yeah. And now you can get it done in an hour. If somebody emails you back later that day, it's, it's really, really good. I agree. I agree. And, and from a publisher standpoint, uh, things are picking up and due to that, uh, in your opinion, uh, what's the landscape like today for writers? You know, writers um, coming out of this pandemic, if I can say we're coming out, I think we are. Um, Mercer, by the way, never shut down. Um, we didn't have classes for about five weeks, but we did online. But we've been in classrooms for the last, you know, two years. Right. Uh, we wore masks a lot. But so, but as far as writers, um, I'll tell you, the thing I have noticed the most is a proliferation of creative writing and a reduction in academic writing. Right on. So so right away, the thing I would like to say is that academic writers are writing less, it seems like, or slower. And creative writers have really gotten busy. And usually when you have a, a, a natural catastrophe or a war or a huge human event, 
the creative writing that comes out of that, okay, will define that era. Now, we have a lot of creative writing defined that would define this era we've been in. But there's been a lot of things submitted to me from the creative side from in, in stories and novels and poetry um, more, more than before. And, and that's that's saying quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but for writers, it's getting a lot harder in, in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think that one of the things that's happening to nonfiction writers, they're not able to do the research and get out and things. But they're also, I think, I think some of them have, have who have talked to me about this, they've struggled with this um, from a motivational point of view because because there have not been events to go to, and mm-hmm. they thrive on those events. Creative writers are not those really who crave all the public attention, right? For events, they enjoy them, right? Right. But the but nonfiction people they 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 tend to like to to appreciate that. So. It's been different. And of course, for the creative writers, it's been harder because they've been writing a lot. But who's going to publish it in in in, in how and when, right? Right. How long they get something published. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of university presses that that's the world I am in. A lot of university presses were shut down. Um, they all work from home for a good year and a half or, or longer. Um, I know for a fact that a lot of journals and things like that they published were very heavily delayed. Mm-hmm. Um, books were being pushed back months or a season or two. And um, so it's been hard for writers, in a sense, to find somebody who can publish their works. Now, I'll, I'll just brag for a moment, but we we haven't missed a beat on getting books published. We've published every book we we had set out to publish in the last two years. That is true. And uh, I mean, I've got a great staff of four people who work with me and, and they've done wonderful work getting this done. Um, but it, but it's very difficult for writers to get motivated when there may not be a publisher or there may not be a venue to promote their work. Well, from a technical standpoint, uh, from the creative, uh, what are some frustrations that the publishers are facing right now, like the paper shortages and uh, supply chain? Right. The the um, I'll give you an example. We have a public we have a printer up in Canada we use mm-hmm. and it used to take about five or six days to get a shipment of books from them. It now takes about 17 days. So instead of coming from a on a truck, it goes on a rail to somewhere and it sits there for a little while. Yeah, it goes to a destination. It might go to Atlanta, but just finding a truck to deliver them all the way to Macon. Yeah, that that's a, that's a huge issue. Getting paper from paper mills to the printers is a huh? shipping issue. Gotcha. Getting paper is an issue. Getting because we're getting updates almost weekly from printers about what paper they're out of, what they yeah. have in stock, what you want to use. Um, um, they don't have enough people right now running all their presses. Oh, okay. And that has led to here, here's the basic thing for a hardback book for us. It used to take five or six weeks to print a thousand copies of a hardback book. And right now it's taking anywhere from 13 to 20 weeks. Oh my God. And so for a paperback book, which used to take three to four weeks is now taking six to nine weeks. And that's not because they're just, just the shortages and the shipping things, but it's also people working the presses. Right. So it's almost like a perfect storm of chaos for the, for the printers. I feel sorry for them, but that's what, that's what's facing us and just getting stuff in, in, in stock. 
again, uh, okay. let me add this: the shipping charges have gone out of the roof. So when we when we ship books to places, um, to a bookstore or to Amazon, the shipping charges have gone through the roof. So the the expenses have gone way up too. So, well, as uh, someone who's extraordinarily well versed in this industry. Uh, I was joking uh, offline a minute you know, ago with you about how, you know, sometimes we poets and novelists can be a little whimsical with our advice to those that are up and coming um, in the uh, in, in the times behind us. But uh, as someone in the publishing field, what advice do you have for up and coming writers? Never stop writing. I just I, I mean, I have read so many literary biographies um, in my time at Mercer Press. We have published um about 1200 books um never stop writing the thing is that that not everything you write is going to get published right um, i've got a I, I, a little while ago um i lost a friend and a writer we'd been publishing he passed away and, and at one point he told me he said mark i've got a novel he said i was looking under my bed and i pulled the box out and i found <laughs> one i liked and so a lot of writers have you know, a box of manuscripts. Um, they, I, I've got another writer who's still alive, and, and I have six unpublished manuscripts of his in digital form on my computer. He said he just wanted me to have them in case he his computer went down. Right. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's n- never stop writing. And just understand that you're not, not everything's going to get it published. And understand that if people have been listening to the, the language in the last, say, five, six years about the top 1% of money people in the, in, the, in America, mm-hmm. only about the top 1% or 5% of writers ever make enough money to live on. Right. I mean, it's, if it's about the money, you know, you're, you've, you're in the wrong business. This is, this is something, and, 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 and you can't sit there and say, I'm thinking about being a writer. We talked about that, Jaron. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about being a writer. Well, you are or you're not. Yeah. And if you're a writer, you're going to be writing all the time. I, I had a I, I had a student who was um, on a study abroad with me and um, they were they were doing some sketch work. We were we were in Greece. That's where this picture is behind. Me. All right. We, they were doing some sketch work and they said, I really enjoy this. I think I may try to be an artist. Uh-huh. And I, and so I got around asking, you know, how many other things, how many how often do you draw? And he said, oh, this I don't really draw that much. Uh huh. Right. So but it's the same thing with writing. If you're going to be a writer, you're going to be writing all the time, whether it's it, it works or not. Right. Um, so I would just say, don't stop writing. Keep lots of notebooks and journals and um, um, keep ideas fresh. Huh? Visit them. Um, just just to be attentive to the situation, to life around you, but to not just to keep writing all the time. Stan, and before I let you go, man, uh, how do you stay so optimistic? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I've 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 studied um, <laughs> I've studied a lot about books, the history of books, and people have been writing for you know about three thousand years now, and um, people keep writing good books, and I I know um, from season to season that I want to find good books. I know people are going to send me good stuff, right? And, Honestly, um, we get about 250 to 350 manuscript proposals per year. Right. Uh, we can publish about 35 of those. Uh-huh. Uh, 
but about 20 to 30 of, of the others are good, really good. I just can't publish everything. Right. So I stay optimistic because I know there's always good writing coming through. People are just people are just doing that kind of good work. Mm-hmm. And that keeps me optimistic for what I've what I've done for almost 27 years at, at Mercy University Press. Um, I've seen good stuff in the past. I know I'll see good stuff in the future. And that keeps me really optimistic about where writing is and what people are working on. Yeah. Um, more and more, I see students come through my office. They're interns of ours. They're English majors over here at the university. And they're excellent writers. You know, I just get really encouraged uh, when I see the kinds of things that are being done out there. So it's easy for me to stay optimistic because I know good writing is coming. And my job is, I mean, I could never forecast book sales, but I can tell you good books are coming. Right on. Right on, man. Well, Mark Jolly, uh, director of Mercer University Press. It has been an honor to have you on the show, boss. Thank you very much. I love being here.
been amazing to share this hour with y'all. My name is Clifford Brooks, and I'm your host for August 2022's Dante's Old South. I want to thank our guests again, poet Ellen Bass, Haberdasher J.D., Mr. Classic Robinson, and Mark Jolly, director of Mercer University's Press. I also want to thank NPR and WTC for their love and support, Mr. Richard Wenham for getting me this show, and Michael Amade for all of his help behind the scenes. I also want to give all my heart out to Rising Appalachia for gracing us with their music and coming on in September's Dante's to tell us a little about their life and career. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this quiet you allow me on the air. It's given me space to, to breathe, and I deeply appreciate you for that. If you want to find out anything about me, my books, my creative writing courses, or the Blue Mountain Review, the company, Southern Collective Experience, Google any of those or go to www.cliffbrooks.com. Y'all be good, be kind, and live true. <laughs>